0: Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for visual artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists, I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, working artists earn $6,000 less than workers with similar education. More than 35% are self-employed, yet less than one-third have achieved full sustainability, meaning they fully support themselves with their art. The difference between just making art and creating a sustainable art career that strengthens an economy for a lifetime is proper business training and tools. You can have an exponential impact with just a small donation. So give small at clarkheulingsfund.org slash impact. That's clarkheulingsfund.org slash impact. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish. It buys the fishing rod. We certainly appreciate your small gift. Now, our guest today is Amy Whitaker. Amy has focused her career on teaching business to artists and creative problem solving to business people. With both an MBA and an MFA, her framework of thinking combines art and corporate thought, which is exactly what she focuses on in her most recent book, Art Thinking. She's also an assistant professor at NYU Steinhardt School. Amy, welcome to the show. Can you take a minute to tell us a little bit more in your own words about yourself and what you do for a living?
1: Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so glad to be here. So what I do uh, with my time is I am on the faculty at NYU. I teach in the Visual Arts Administration program in Steinhardt inside the art school. And then I, for about a decade, have been teaching business as a creative practice uh, to artists, and then, as you say, also leading creativity workshops for business people, helping bridge the gray area between creativity and commerce.
0: Now, Amy, your most recent book uses this term, art thinking. What is that, and why is it important?
1: So, it's interesting that you say that. Um, Art thinking, for a lot of people, conjures the term design thinking, which I think is part of how my publisher came up with that title. Design thinking is a process of solving any creative problem by generalizing the method of designing a product to anything. Art thinking is a little bit different from design thinking. When you're doing design thinking, you usually have a brief that you're designing against or a solution that you're designing toward. Art thinking is more exploratory. It comes more from a question that pulls you forward. So art thinking um, encapsulates the moment that artists face of the blank canvas of having an idea of the direction you want to move in, but not knowing yet if you can really get there and having to explore. And that kind of work is especially at odds with the market because you probably won't do it efficiently the first time and you won't know the value of what you're creating or even if you'll succeed until you're done. And so you have to carve out the space and use tools of the market well to support your own early exploration and forays.
0: So Amy, you know, how, how do corporations stand to gain from art thinking?
1: So let me just back up a second, Daniel, and give a little context. So as you mentioned, I have an MBA and an MFA. My MFA is in painting, and I went to art school after I had already gone to business school. When I got out of art school, I entered into what I would affectionately refer to as the wilderness years of narrative incoherence because I had a degree in large format oil painting, and I also had a degree in building Excel models to solve problems and to be confident that I could solve all problems with the same Excel model And I felt weird, like a person who had a foot in the far ends of the twister board. But what I really came to understand was that the thing that's weird is that we all, in corporations and in art studios and everywhere in between, we all lack language for how to navigate the middle space between creativity and commerce. So I'm very lucky to teach workshops for artists. I teach a lot through the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council uh, and elsewhere in New York, um, but I also am lucky to do business workshops in corporations, um, magazines and design companies and lots of household names. And in those workshops, those people are grappling with the same thing. Most people are in changing industries. Most of us have any uncertainty, even anxiety about our economic and political futures. And the nature of business is change. So even if you're really succeeding at something, you actually have to force yourself to go back to the drawing board all the time. And the definition of art that art thinking is based on applies in a corporation. And what that definition is, is that if you're making a work of art in any field, it's a process, not of going from a known point A to a known point B, but a process of inventing point B. And it doesn't mean that you have to throw everything out wholesale and only invent point B all the time. It means that you need to think in portfolios. So you need to know the parts of your business where you go from A to B really well, and then the other parts where you're carving out space to see if you can invent point B, to to research and pursue an R and D question. And funding R and D is hard in corporations. Um, it's hard to devote the time and the resources and the mind space to doing it.
0: Wow, this is really well developed. So this has to do a lot with the things that make a business continually remain viable over time. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you know, you talk about the middle space between art and business as sort of the crux of where art thinking occurs. But it still implies that, you know, we don't necessarily always acknowledge that middle space and that there's a gap. So so how did a divide between art and business come about in the first place.
1: It's a great question and I'd have to time travel to tell you for sure. I think there's there's so many stereotypes that have come to be truly unacceptable in my lifetime and I think the stereotype between art and business is not one of them. I think there's still a little bit of a suits versus a creative idea and having taught business to artists for, you know, more than a decade Uh, I've seen attitudes change a lot, but I think people are still very afraid of the market and people feel that business is a set of rules. It's a static system and it's taught in a way that is, you know, please accept this wholesale. You're being invited into a club of thinking like a business person and people feel like they're selling out. Then I don't think that's the case at all. I think business is incredibly creative and that it's a set of structural building blocks. And so as a creative person, you can take your way of working, whether that's as a visual artist or a social practice artist or a choreographer, and you can move business around like a form. And and a lot of that has to do with your understanding really what your own politics are. When I'm teaching, I always say that you know, when you talk about art and business at the same time, at any level, we could be talking about Sotheby's, we could be talking about someone who does social practice art on the subway, you're always talking about your politics. The dividing line between the two is how far do you want money to come into your art practice? And I think people have a real discomfort with that conversation. So when I first started teaching, I remember this one time I was teaching a workshop on Governor's Island on a Sunday morning. And someone started getting really upset with me, kind of like I was the man, like I was the rapacious capitalist who was representing the system. And it's kind of like, you know, if I were the man, I would not be teaching you business on a Sunday morning. I would be at home or at my office. And so I think, you know, over time, I've started to understand that a lot of that is a language problem, that so many of the things that people approach in business, when they're talking about a business plan or return on investment. They're really talking about similar things to what happens in art. They're talking about successful grant funding, sustainability, uh, an artist proposal, kind of the, the why, the sort of why you want to create something, what the contribution is, what you're doing of value. And those questions exist on the corporate side too. But, you know, to do good in the world, sorry, to do good in the world, you don't have to work for a nonprofit. You can also work for a corporation that creates something of value and that works in humane ways. So I think we just sort of lack the ability to spend that extra energy navigating the ethical gray area and also trusting ourselves that if we start to delve into business, we're not going to necessarily dive off of the deep end into some crazy Faustian bargain, but in fact, just to control the way in which we interact with a world that is structured as a market economy.
0: Wow, so that's a very developed answer, just like the one before it. Uh, this is I already know I'm getting this book because <laughs> you know, and putting it on I haven't read it, you know, but I, I, I now I'm convinced you know just yeah you know, and I say that to very few people on the show just because you're on a show doesn't yeah. mean I'm buying your book because do you realize how many books I'd have to read given how many episodes but this one, man, there's a lot of of really challenging and really thoughtful provocation that goes into it so I, I want to throw another wrench in the mix I you know I'm gonna stir things up what role does technology play in art thinking does it help or hinder and I'll, I'll just confide why I'm asking that because when you start out you sort of said hey when people hear that phrase art thinking they they often just sort of immediately their mind goes to design and and that of course makes me think of what is pivotal right now in design you know which is so much uh intrusion or contribution depending on your politics uh, at any given you know your one's attitude uh at any given moment into design and into art and there's a, a lot of conversation about it so so what does what role does technology play in art thinking
1: yeah no it's a great question and honestly my brain has cycled through about five potential answers while you've been asking the question so we'll see what comes up <laughs> um, but let me just say thank you for getting the book um <laughs> My mother's an English professor, so i I have a long history of reading and not reading books. She showed us how to look up the master plots of fiction at the library when I was about twelve and it's a book that I worked on that was meant to be read it's you know it's meant to uh, reward the effort of making time to read it i I understand I'm a writer I love to read I'm a very slow reader, so I understand the investment of reading a book and thank you. <laughs> To answer your question about technology, I think it operates in a few different levels and that technology ultimately helps art thinking, but some of the need for art thinking is in relation to technology. So technology really um, intensifies scale. If you look at the way that venture capital investing works right now and has for the past 10 years, people look to invest in scalable technology platforms like Facebook, for example or PayPal. And the argument is that once you invest in it, if you get a huge enough market, you have a network externality. So, the more people who are on it, the more valuable the platform is. And the variable cost of adding one person is almost zero. So, it's fixed cost intensive. But if you can get over the hurdle, you can create a lot of value. The issue with that is that it's, to me, uh, very related to income inequality. That... The The way that economics is structured to work, the belief system, almost the religion behind economics, I mean that secularly, is that price equals value. And in those situations, price doesn't equal value because you end up with a very large consolidated technology platform on one side and many individual actors on the other. And this is a design challenge of capitalism. There's a whole section kind of late in the book on the design constraints of capitalism, which is actually a favorite part of mine. And I'd like to thank my editor for for letting it live in the book. The other things that structurally, the same way that oil paint has its limitations and its advantages, there are things about capitalism that are limited. And I think that technology actually is in the next five to 10 years going to create a lot of possibilities that haven't existed before. Because what technology does is it pixelates the tech platform itself. So you don't have to have Facebook or these huge centralized tech companies. Technology itself is very, very good at managing the trade of very small fractional shares of ownership. So one of the main arguments in art thinking is that if you don't know the value of something ahead of time, right, if you're inventing point B e and the value of what you're creating is only known in the point B world, then price and value move out of lockstep. So you need money to invest in an early stage project, you know, when Robert Rauschenberg is in his studio in 1957, not in 1985, right? And so how do you do that? And I think ownership is the answer. I think assigning ownership shares is the answer. And you see this a lot. You see a history of people in technology who've been paid in royalties, and the fact that they were paid in royalties is incredibly generative. There are a couple of people in the art thinking book, uh, Thomas Fogarty, who's a medical device inventor, and Andreas von Bechtelsheim, who was one of the founders of Sun Microsystems. Their careers were founded on being paid royalties, actually in their teens. And so I think that if we start thinking that way, so I do research on what would happen if artists owned equity, if artists retained equity in their work in the primary market, and if those shares traded. And if you look at the theory of ownership and economics, what's called Coase theorem, which is a Nobel Prize winning piece of economic theory, um, basically property rights have this magical quality, which is that once they exist, it doesn't matter how they're valued. It just matters that they can trade with relatively low transaction costs. And if they can, then the market itself will set a price. So if you sell an artwork for $100 and you pocket 90 and retain 10% equity, you can turn around and sell part of that on a secondary market and create sources of patronage for artists or create future sources of investment wealth. So you essentially change the economy from consumption to investment by taking ownership shares. And... Technology is incredibly important in that because technology is the difference between copyright clearance being cleared by fax, which it still is in some cases, and copyright clearance being cleared by computers that are secured by a decentralized ledger like the blockchain.
0: Wow. So um, we've learned now. You poke Amy Whitaker and you get a substantive answer on a lot of different fronts. You're going to have to you're going to have to juggle a few balls in your mental headspace to really. Well, all right. So let me ask that makes that brings me uh, to another thought, which is, you know, I grew up. Amy in a how with half my family being sort of religious and if they had a thing that would be their thing and the other half of the family being scientific uh, and if they had a thing that was it scientific mm-hmm. method labs and research and all of that and um, you know what I what I sort of adopted early on is that you know faith and science each have Spheres uh, and they have limits, you know, they have like a, a limit to how what their area of, of um, Competence is faith can take you to a certain place, but there's areas that are just outside that sphere science You know built into the scientific method. There's a limit to what science is meant to tell you about the world So now I, I want to bring that back around to art thinking uh, because it is so elaborate what you've laid out and sort of ask you, what, if any, are the limits to art thinking versus what it can solve? How What's the scope of the sphere, in other words?
1: <laughs> well, you are I mean, you're asking someone who has a clear bias. So I think art thinking can apply to anything. I, I love what you say about growing up in a household that has religion and science. And I, it's, you know, lucky me that you haven't read the, the book. So it's not a huge spoiler when I say this. Um the whole first chapter of the book, the introduction, is really a, about this idea about how art and science relate. And to cut to the taste, I think what unifies these fears is holding skepticism and curiosity. The more I work, the more I think curiosity is really the right proxy for creativity. That increasingly, creativity is a, if not an overused word, it's hard for us to remember the wonder of it when you say it because it's such a common word. But I think the vector of creativity is really curiosity and skepticism and that those undergird um, the, you know, the practice of science, uh, but also the sort of the disciplines of faith. So the, the story in the book is that my mother, as I mentioned, was an English, she is an English professor and my father was a research scientist. He was a neurologist and, Someone asked him once how they got along being in such different fields, and he said that he was in the business of saving lives, but she was in the business of making lives worth saving. And what I actually loved about that the most was that they actually did the opposite, that my mother taught people what I consider a survival skill of being able to write and complete sentences. And my father helped people with quality of life issues, people with multiple sclerosis or debilitating headaches. And um I think that what we're talking about is similar, that you know, you don't wanna be a scientist who has no imagination and you don't want to be an artist who has no rigor. And so we're balancing these things. It's the kind of strength and flexibility balance. And that's what I love about art thinking as a tool is that there's a there's an optimism and a sense of belief and possibility. And there's a before picture in which you have to take the risk and ask a question that really matters to you and try to solve it, even if you might fail. You see this in the story of someone like Roger Bannister running the first sub-four-minute mile in 1954. But but that's the kind of essence of art thinking, but you don't have to check your practical self to do it. You you do this in tandem with the rest of your life. So it's this idea that there's a there's almost like a spiritual and practical question of how to live embedded in that, which is which is to believe in things that are beyond what you can demonstrate scientifically right now, to hold hold that kind of skepticism and space for wonder, which to me can be a spiritual space, but also to subject artistic process to, you know, the rigors of science, the it's certainly in the current political climate, the the pillars of truth and curious debate and respectfulness. And so I like to think of art thinking as a a way of bringing humanity into all the problems that we face, that creativity is a proxy for independent thinking and that, you know, especially in the robot age, what's specific about us and unpredictable and idiosyncratic is actually our magic.
0: Well, I'm going to be biased because as we're in the show, I've been flipping through the Amazon preview of your book, which generously gives me access to uh, a number of chapters and so forth. And uh, I already see that you've quoted my favorite uh, sci-fi author, Robert Heinlein, who is well known yeah. for thinking about exactly your last sentence, uh, which is that you know creativity is a proxy for, uh, for free thought. Uh, and and of course, you quote him on a different matter, a different point. But um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, if you're a fellow Highland geek, uh, I got to get this book. Tell me <laughs> on that note uh, more about working with IBM and Google.
1: Oh yeah, so I gave a workshop at IBM a long time ago. A friend invited me in, and what was interesting about it, that was really surprising. It was one of the early pilot workshops for this book. Was that we were talking about. You know, art as a process with regard to one's career. And you could feel the emotional energy in the room. It was very tender and open. And I think that is something that certainly happened to me where you're running and running and running and you have to perform and get through a to do list and, you know, be successful in whatever sphere. And then you sit down, maybe at lunch with a friend, and you have some sort of open hearted moment where there's space in which to confront yourself. And so, It felt like that. It didn't feel like anyone was going to start crying, but it felt like everyone was very emotionally present and grounded. And I I think that's an important part of the art thinking process. It's what in the book is called studio time, just sort of being able to show up to a pocket of space as opposed to showing up to a task on your to-do list. And uh, Google, I gave a talk there when my first book came out and then uh, had the privilege of interviewing a guy named Ricardo Prado for the book, he works um, as a design lead on Google X. And so he evaluates some of their really, really early stage projects. And he has to make these rigorous, do I invest, do I not invest decisions, but at a stage where everything seems like a science fiction future. And so it was really interesting. The main takeaway there is really about trading judgment for discernment, which is another theme in the book, not, you know, is this good or bad, but how can this be better? And how can I see it evolving over time? So it a kind of judgment, that sort of human and scientific sense of, of discernment. And I've actually, I've given a couple of talks at Google. I went for lunch once and um, got asked to introduce a speaker who was a longtime mentor of mine. So I, I guess I've spoken there twice. And then, yeah, I did a workshop um, that took place at Google that was uh, for my college alumni group a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I think, you know, these are great questions for a company like Google where they have succeeded so astronomically, and they've certainly created the point B future that we all live in. And it's interesting to have to move forward and to continue to invent uh, from a position of such incredible success and it's it's interesting to watch how that all happens
0: well so I'm gonna round out this segment on art thinking before we sort of move on to art and business or artists and business by asking you this question so for the company that wants to be the next Google um, how do they go about uh, you know you talk about harnessing creativity in the workplace how do they go about harnessing it
1: yeah so So I think the biggest thing I would say is to accept that the way to become the next Google is not to follow the Google template, but to become the next whatever you are trying to be from first principles that you believe can be as transformational and important as Google. So I think there are different underlying things that you learn in any discipline. I I work with a blockchain company that's founded by someone who studies physics, and we were talking about what you learn in physics versus what you learn in business. And I said, in business, you learn to make decisions with incomplete information and to be able to have a bias toward action and to analyze. And in physics, you learn to reason from first principle. So I think what I would say is that to become the next Google You have to reason your success from first principle, and you have to take skillful risks. You will probably have to self-invest at some point. You will probably have to what is now called pivot at some point where um, I do a workshop and I teach where I ask people to think of everything they can possibly do with a brick. Um, And it's a hilarious exercise to do in a room full of artists because it'll take forever before anyone says build a wall or a house, nothing so mundane. Um, you know, you can bake a chicken under it or pulverize it and make an exfoliator or use it as a weapon, et cetera. But the the lesson is that, you know, even Google didn't set out to be Google. Um, they founded that as a search algorithm and they tried to sell it. And every company, a lot of these are now in the internet graveyard. All of the companies said search is dead and no one wanted to buy it. So they took their brick that they thought they would sell as a search algorithm and they made it into a company instead. So I think that, you know, you would call that a pivot, but I think it's a form of material resourcefulness. It's a form of thinking from first principle about what you have and what you can do with it and believing that you have something that's of value to a market and investing in it, whether with your own money or with your time and intellect. And actually, Andreas von Bechtelschein, the founder of Sun Microsystems, who was paid royalties on a part that he developed for an Intel computer when he was growing up in Germany in the 70s. He's the person who wrote the first check to Google. They famously wrote them a $100,000 check made out to Google Inc. And they had to incorporate in order to cash it. So I just think these companies are like art projects in their early days. And, you know, you have to kind of go for it. You probably have to get a little lucky, but you also have to be extremely rigorous and hardworking and you know flexible and at the same time um, and if I were to, if I were going to shift that back to art thinking I would say you're leading from a question you know you're you know Google for a long time said that their purpose was to organize the world's information and that's not a that's not a solution that's not how do I design a specific project or product that's that's a purpose. That's a lighthouse question that you can rake forward over a pretty large expanse. And from your personal life, you're probably going to have, you know, something that supports your income while you're working on that as a side project, or you're going to have to get someone else to fund it. Um, and there's some tools in the book for how to think about that, that portfolio as well. That's, yeah, that's the story.
0: That's a great story. If you've been finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. A portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. Share this commitment with us now at ClarkHealingsFund.org slash impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Amy, switching to sort of the artist and business segment of the show, you decided to get both an MBA and an MFA. My question is, why and would you recommend that same trajectory to other people?
1: <laughs> yeah, I did it. I did it ad hoc and somewhat accidentally. I think that the education in both art and business is really important. Um, I, I didn't set out to do it and I did it I graduated from art school in 2004, so I, d- I did it before it was fashionable. I think, you know, whether people enroll in full time education is a personal decision of time and finance, and I think also changing a lot. But I, I do think in my work with artists that having a business education is really important. And I actually don't think that's because I want artists to manage their own careers. I do but I think it's because I think artists have a citizen responsibility to show up to the design of the world. And that a lot of things that artists face are collective design problems and that are only solved by conversation and collaboration. And it is my great hope that, you know, It's not that economics will serve artists, but that artists will serve economics and pull a chair up to the table of how we solve larger problems in the world, whether that's climate change or income inequality or access to education or anything else.
0: So Amy, does shifting the focus to business models deprive artists and art consumers of a purely aesthetic focus?
1: Yeah, I I really appreciate the loss of innocence question. You know, I'm someone, I haven't gotten married, so I can still go to a wedding and I don't know how much the tent or the cake costs. Um, And I think if you do know that already, you can still enjoy being at a wedding. And I think the art market is a little bit like that. So when I'm teaching, I always offer people a metaphor, which is that there are two levels of creativity. There's writing the letter and designing the envelope. And writing the letter is the work itself, and designing the envelope is making the economic structure in which the work can exist. Um, I teach business to choreographers, and there's a really lovely choreographer named Annie B. Parson, who's with Big Dance Company. And she says that when she's doing work, she does commercial work for people like David Byrne. She worked for, with David Bowie and a bunch of other people. But part of her process is, you know, she thinks about it, she thinks about movements, and at some point she locks herself in a room by herself so that she can work things out. So I think business is that room. Like if you don't have that space, and that space is constructed by business, you you can't make the work. So from an artist standpoint, business it's protective to the space in which you make the work and it also amplifies the reach of what you make. And I would actually take it a step further and say that, you know, the the loss of innocence in the larger art market has already happened and i think there actually are many sophisticated selling strategies that are about pretending not to sell. You see a lot of non-selling exhibitions in mega galleries and you see a lot of conversations that pretend to be about art but are really about money. And i think for me it's a blessing to have spent a little bit of time working in finance and a lot of time working with some great people in the arts to to be able to you know watch people who are at the top of their field in the art world love the messiness of art and process and to watch people in the finance field have it be so obviously about money that it's really about people. So I think having an ability to talk about business as a structure is a way of having healthy boundaries. It's a way of transacting well. If you're buying or selling art, it's a way of, you know, looking at the art market analytically and not obfuscating it, which, you know, keeps people out of the conversation. And it's a way of being able to support yourself and sustain your work as an artist. And I think the more we have a conversation that includes business, the more we can have clarity and transparency and it's not so mystified and therefore controllable by you know, small pockets of, of people, sort of Wizard of Oz style.
0: Uh, well, I, I really identify with that issue of people trying to sell without selling or, or talk about sales without talking about selling. You know, I, I was a sales leader and sales trainer in uh, uh, corporations uh, in the Fortune 500 world for, for more than a decade. I, I traveled around the world and would, would teach salespeople or people that needed to become salespeople in a sort of everybody sales environment my experience is is delightful you know um uh, i don't know how people will take this but the bambis become the best darth vaders you know (laughs) in the end if if you're sort of saying i i don't i don't want to do this i don't want to soil myself with the selling you know it comes down to do you believe in what it is you're producing do you believe that it's valuable to another person do you believe that there's an actual benefit in them partaking And if you do, then aren't you shorting them by not making a passionate case for it? And if you don't, then why are you making it? And in the end, when people sort of make that pivot, um, it becomes less about the stereotype of selling and more about uh, passionate commitment to what it is you're about and, and what you want to share with the world. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to kind of hear you talk. No,
1: about it's, it's interesting. I really relate to what you're saying. It's about an alignment of price and value and realizing that you have something of value and, and I get it. It's, you know, I'm a writer. It's, it's very difficult when you're a creative person. And and I actually illustrated the book to you. Uh, and I, I, I don't have a space in which I can make large format oil paintings, but I do still draw um, and make PowerPoint slides and take a lot of pictures to make into PowerPoint slides. But I think that when you're selling and you're the creative person, rarely is self-promotion and artistic ability given to the same person in, in equal measure. And I think it's very hard for most people to be the locus of vulnerability and the locus of enthusiasm at the same time. That you created the work, you could tell anyone what's wrong with it. You know what it looked like on its kind of gangliest, ugliest, you know, awkward in-between phase day. And you're the person who has to, you know, champion it as well. And it's hard to wear both of those hats. So I can kind of understand, you know, ideally people have dealers who do that work for them or friends who do that work for them. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's not easy. It's not easy to do that. And sometimes markets take a long time to recognize things of value. And sometimes markets are swayed by charisma, you know, and kind of emperor's new clothes fads. Of course, you know, we all think there's an emperor's new clothes fad, and we all rarely agree on what that fad is. So, you know, the market kind of sorts it out faction style. But I yeah, I really, really feel what you're saying about the, the sales story for sure.
0: So as a trend, then, you know, I, I know you see this at conferences, and you see this in individual cases, but as a trend, are artists becoming more aware of their roles as business people? And do artists actually believe that the rules and principles of operating a business apply to their art?
1: Yeah, I think artists are becoming more aware of business. I think there's been a lot of work done. Uh, Creative Capital has done a lot of work. The New York Foundation for the Arts has done a lot of work. The Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, the Joan Mitchell Foundation, uh, the Tremaine Foundation has funded a lot of this work. And I've gotten to build a couple of professional development curricula for artists at the New Museum Incubator and at the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council. And I think absolutely artists are becoming more business aware. I think what I would add to that is that there's a, and I read an essay about this in Hyperallergic last summer. But there's almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of need kind of model that you could apply to the way business is taught to artists. And there's a zero point zero level where you pretend the market doesn't exist and that you should just make your work. And I would say that was that's the approach up until five or ten years ago. And it, you know you want to be in that space where it's just you and the art, but to build that room you need business, right? So there's this 1.0 level and that's the business as a set of rules. But what I find is that that sometimes turns people into, forgive me, myopic self-promoters where you meet people at parties and they don't connect with you at a human level. They feel like they have to tell you about their work and they've been trained to give you their pitch. And you're like, you know, I, I don't need to be sold. I need to be enrolled in your cause and I need to connect with you as a human being. And You know, business doesn't need to be the tail wagging the dog. It needs to be something in your arsenal. Like you need to be a person who understands business, not a business person. And so I think there's a 2.0 level above that, which is what I generally teach, which is business as a creative design medium, where you're moving around these pieces of cost structure and risk and return, and you're figuring out what works for you that supports your practice and feels okay with your politics. And sometimes there's some decisions on the margin or a cross subsidy of your day job supporting your practice for a while, but the kind of moving the blocks around and and having a feeling of autonomy and flexibility toward the market the same way that you might toward your art itself. And then the third level is business as a form of civic discourse and discussion about how the world works. So, experiencing a challenge or a problem that has to do with money. And feeling isolated by it and then doing what I would call the periscope move where you like put the periscope up from the submarine and kind of look around and you realize that other people are having the same problem that you are and that you're not alone and that it's a structural problem that manifests at an individual level. And so talking to people about the challenges in the field and how to make them better and then by extension, you know, challenges in the field that are also challenges in the economy, like, for example, the importance of home ownership or something like that so yeah, I do think people are, are more and more sophisticated. I also feel like I've probably become a better teacher over time. So I'm also better able to talk about business in the language of art, um, and to understand ways in which I might talk past people where I'm saying something that would make sense. But, you know, the language of business is just, it's sometimes rather acidic, you know, and, uh, or um, anodyne or, you know, like has all the personality of a sterile operating room. And so um, I think it's just it's a process of kind of humanizing it and again, occupying that middle space between art and business.
0: Well, wow, this is so relevant, you know, not to intrude too much on the show. I'm the host, but it's so relevant to me personally. I've been spending a lot of time lately reading and thinking and listening and consulting, you know, asking advice uh, about This very problem, you know, in in business, nobody really wants you to tell them what they're selling, tell you what they're selling. They want to hear what you're passionate about uh, or what you're committed to. And uh, sometimes it's really hard to think of those terms. You know, case in point, you asked me before the show started, you know, the audience hasn't heard this. You know, what is the purpose? of this show, and I couldn't, I didn't understand what you were asking me. I couldn't really place the question. Uh, and I, I was in my technical mode, doing sound checks and thinking about that. And uh, and I got it as you were talking now. So, uh, you know, it's something that we probably should uh, articulate for the audience. You know, the Clark Healings Fund, podcast the thriving artist podcast you know our goal is to try to create a resource portal of of thinking inspiration insights and specific skills about art and business so that people can avail themselves of this as a form of public education so Mm -hmm. for us a podcast is an educational act and while we do run these sort of psa's Um, you know, talking about donations or asking people to help and participate. You know, the real purpose, it's not a fundraising effort. I mean, the real purpose of the show is we're trying to create an access point where people can avail themselves, you know, sort of in an asynchronous 24-7 way Mm -hmm. of the best thinking on art and business they can get, which is, of course, why we invited you. So I love that you've called this out because it... (laughs) It makes me want to think. How are we selling this show? Are we telling people what is what we're passionate about, or are we selling it? You
1: know, right. no. I think that you know one of the things that really comes up for me, having had that conversation with you before we went online, is that I think part of why it's hard to articulate is related to some things that came up for me when I was writing the you know marketing collateral or being shown marketing collateral around art thinking or writing the last chapter of the book because. I think these are questions about the value of a liberal arts education right. and they're questions about the kind of fields like art and business that have a blind man, just blind men describing the elephant problem where you have, there's a language immersion or you have to kind of look at a piece and another piece and then connect the dots and everyone will look at different parts of the elephant because we'll all have different emphases in what we find interesting, but it's that it's a field where you have to approach it as a whole and that is, it's a kind of education of the whole person approach, which is very much like like a liberal arts education, where you're you're just kind of cultivating your own thinking and refining your own thinking and your own ability to ask the right questions across many different spheres. Because you know, art business is such a cross section of spheres, and it's also one that, in, in an interesting way, but also in a sometimes difficult way doesn't function exactly according to a lot of the principles of business. You know, I, I'm always teaching and I'm like, here's the economic theory anyway, here's how it works in the arts. And so, you know, you're, you're kind of toggling anyway. So yeah, I I think these are really questions of uh, liberal arts thinking and of working across fields. And uh, the last chapter of art thinking is about this. It's about the, you know, seeing the whole, it's about a project in Memphis called Crosstown. That's a 1.5 million square foot building being turned into an arts complex and urban village uh, by a video artist and an art history professor in conjunction with a lot of people in the local committees, you know, local community ranging from the city and county mayors to a group of philanthropists to the Goldman Sachs Urban Investment Group. And, and you know, the art, the art sphere is very similar, where... The, you know, the creativity of their looking at this building that had been closed since 1993, looking at it, you know, five or 10 years ago and saying, I wonder if we could do something with it, um, that, that is an artistic impulse. But to solve a problem, you need all these different kinds of skills. And, you know, we live in an age of increasingly specialized information and increasingly proliferating data. And so, you, you know, these, these abilities to connect the dots to be able to work with other people are, are increasingly important.
0: Well, this is really helpful. You know, as we go into the third section, uh, the third segment of the show, I want to pivot and just ask you about your previous book. So you wrote the book Museum Legs on why people get bored in art museums. And I will confess that up until recent (laughs) years, I was one of those people and uh, I was annoyed at art museums because they put so many different periods and times and styles together on the same white wall and I I just looked at it as a big like a it's a thrift store of art I would say and I was really Mm -hmm. frustrated but then I realized how little art I have access to that I really want to see everywhere else and I started going to art museums so my question to you is uh, why do people why do they get bored and tired in our
1: museums? <laughs> yeah. So if I could just add one thing on the question before, and this kind of segues, um, I wanted to give a shout out to one of the other podcasts that you did with Jim Grace from the art and business council at, um, oh, yeah. in yeah. Boston. Um he, I think he's a great example of someone who's like such a kind, high quality human being who also helps artists with the business side. And He actually helped me um, arrange to do a photo shoot at a law firm in Boston um, uh, for a Financial Times article. This law firm has been collecting um, Solowit wall drawings for a really long time, and um, this is really interesting um, to be able to do that. And so, I think I I just want to say there's a there's a kind of theory of the art world that's you know focused on the people who are really kind. Um, who are doing great work and kind of ignore ignore the rest. And I, I feel that that is a little bit how the Museum Legs book came about because I had this wonderful publisher I met through a friend. My friend went to a wedding and my prospective publisher was on the bride side and she was on the groom side. And I had given her an early draft of Museum Legs to read, and she's a lovely person. And she started laughing out loud. And he said, "What are you reading?" And Five years later, he became my publisher, and I was the first book of a new art press. And when his name is Greg Albers. He uh, works at the Getty and is involved in the Museum Computer Network. And people may know him as the founder of the People's eBook Kickstarter project. But when he was founding Whole Art Books, the H-O-L, he said, you know, I like art. I like books. I don't like art books. And he didn't really completely mean that, but he he really meant what would... What would it take to write art books that are really meant to be read? And so museum legs, in a funny way, was about the same themes. So to circle back to your question, why do people get bored and tired in art museums and why does it matter? I think it's because museums are no longer built in lockstep with the human experience. They're built out of scale. And some of the reasons they're built out of scale are economic. But when I wrote that book, you know, in 2009, we were coming off of a decade of huge museum expansion projects, and you could make the case that those projects came about because directors were galvanizing boards by having them rally behind massive capital campaigns, and that that also gave a clarifying kind of vector of progress to the organization to say, look, we're doing this new building, and museums can always make a case for a new building because they always have so many more artworks and they have space to show. That's just the nature of a museum is to show, you know, 5% or less of their collection in many cases. And what happens, though, is that you have this huge building and it's a landmark. You know, it's like the Statue of Liberty, but sometimes it's nice to be inside and to look at the art and sometimes it's not. And then sometimes the building gets built and then the institution has a gaping hole in their operating budget because they raise money to cover the building, but it costs more to manage it, or because it's bigger, they feel like they should have a higher admissions charge. And there's this inculcation of business thinking in museums along the lines of, well, we're a leisure activity, someone's paying $15 to go to a movie, so maybe they should pay $15 or $20 or $25 to go to a museum. And it makes it into an economic transaction where it becomes this all-you-can-eat buffet where you go and you feel like you have to get your $25 worth. So I think that people get bored and tired because they're overwhelmed by the scale of the experience and they feel like they should be a much larger quantity of art than certainly I can take in. And that's one piece of it. And then another piece is that I think museums are oriented toward the voice of the art historian as opposed to the voice of the artist. So there's this this voice that says, this is the most important artwork in the history of time, and normatively you should like it. And that's a very different voice from identifying with the artist at the moment the art was made, thinking about it as a process, you know, um, being a fellow creative traveler or just um, enjoying the beauty of it. And some of this is a wall label issue where, you know, you, you get this kind of, here you see a blue chair on a green carpet, and it's by this really important artist, as opposed to giving you kind of complimentary information about the artist's life and where the blue chair on the green carpet was and kind of bringing it to life narratively in time and space. And some of this is because there are so many talents that our historians have, you know, but they're not um, necessarily pure narrative talents or necessarily creative identification talents. And so it's a widening of the voice of the institution. Also, people have gotten bored and tired in museums since at least the 1920s or 1910s. There's an absolutely wonderful book by Benjamin Ives Gilman called Museum Ideals of Purpose and Method, and he um, pointed out that art museums are one of the only places in life where you're asked to stand, to think, and to sit to rest. Usually, you sit to think and you stand or walk to rest, and so I think there's just a kind of fundamental design issue. So I think the ideal way to visit a museum is to go in on your lunch break for free, go see one or two things, and then leave. Um, Or to teach a class at MoMA so that you can hang out in the galleries when they're closed, even if you're teaching about economics and business models, and um, just spend time with the work. Um, But that's that's not how the modern, again, business cycle time of traveling exhibitions works either. So I know a lot of people who are doing amazing territorial work and whose you know, institutions I hold in, in real esteem, but I think there's a restraint on the pricing side and on the building side that I think would make museums less easy to get bored and tired in. I also think, and this is a small point, museums architecturally should have a democratically orienting access, usually a staircase. And some museums have it, the Tate Modern has it, where you know where you are in space because you go up the escalator. The old MoMA had it. And a lot of newer buildings, um, I would include SF MoMA and the Whitney, they're beautiful buildings and they have gorgeous installations, but they're not easy to get around. You get stuck in a stairwell in the corner. The the vistas are built in a monument way, not in a democratic access way. So that's mostly my answer to your question.
0: Well, it's very thorough, but it it. Yeah it kind of is a survey of many of the unspoken feelings that I still have you know <laughs> I see films I see movies where some guy is spending his lunch break in a museum you know he goes every day and he unpacks a sandwich from a bag and if the sandwich cost $8 then his lunch cost $48 because do you know what admission cost to that museum right. and uh, so th- there is a kind of a that threat that alright I'm $40 this Fine, it's fair if you go once in a blue moon, but if you're going to go every afternoon, why isn't why isn't there a better day, a better way? And I know you can join, but then the other issue is um, a combination of the entry point and the way the art is laid out so in some museums i can't get out you know the exit through the gift shop is the meme but i mean seriously it's a maze and <laughs> it's designed so that you have to there's a guard there and you have to go all the way back through uh, i just came from one in florence the uffizi is this way yeah it takes you 45 minutes to get out of the museum I know uh, but then so you're in the museum And in a lot of museums, I I love this one uh, series of of photos that we saw, it was a civil rights display. And you could go from one piece to the next and uh, at your own pace, and you were sort of on the same theme. Instead of every five inches, you're having to shift gears and you're looking at Gauguin one minute and and a Renoir the next. And so it encourages a particular pace where you know, sort of you're expected to slow down and spend a long time staring at one and not let it go before you move on to another. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that. I want to see several Renoirs that reflect, you know, uh, a trajectory. Mm -hmm. uh, And I want to explore that uh, non-linearly at my own pace. And I want to be able to do that at lunch and come back the next day Uh and explore the And Museums don't really accommodate guys like me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think there's so many different things in what you just said. I mean, one is that some museums don't have the depth of collection, so you'd need to be in an exhibition for that to happen. And then others, you know, I think there's an issue of trust you're talking about. It's like trust in the viewer. Like the you know, there's an invitation, there's a sense of hospitality that's really important where you feel invited in to kind of you know, it's a it's the people's museum and you can make yourself at home and look at the work. Um I think also it's, you know, it is hard strategically for museums to accommodate many different kinds of audiences. If I'm at the UCC in Florence, I'm there as a tourist and I intend to spend the day. If I'm at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, I'm there on um, my lunch break and I want to see a couple of things or it's an exhibition. And they're very different vectors. I really think that the way that Tate does it where it's free to enter, but you pay for an exhibition is really effective. And I think... I'm sympathetic because a lot of the American museums, especially um, the larger city museums, like the moment and the Met are hugely dependent on ticket sales or ticket revenue. Um, But I, I just think the act of being able to walk up to an artwork without having to go through a gatekeeping mechanism is, is really important. And um, again, there's a trust hospitality piece to it. So I'm, I'm with you. I'm, you know, I'm always the first person to parachute out for a cup of coffee. So I'm the lightest lightweight. Every once in a while someone comes up to me and tells me that they never get museum legs. And I'm like, next edition, I'll write I'll write an afterword called museum stamina for you. Because there you know, there's some people who are quite agreeable. I just think um I don't have uh blinders. I take in so much visual information that you know I kinda get overwhelmed um pretty quickly. But, you know, if you're in conversation with someone, if you have the privilege of going to a museum with someone who's a close looker and has some background in the subject matter, you know, it's such an absolute pleasure. And it's like going for a long run mentally where you're exhausted but happy for it. So um, I think, yeah, there there are a lot of, I think museum life in a funny way is about the same set of questions as art thinking. It's about the intersection of creative, economic, and political life just in a very different context.
0: Well, in fairness, there are uh, a lot of exceptions, especially here in New York. You know, and MoMA's membership is very affordable and so on. Uh, you know, I, uh, I really liked the, the most recent one I've been to is um, the Guggenheim collection in, uh, in Venice. Um, oh, yeah. Most people go to Venice, they look at the old stuff. I like to go and look <laughs> at the modern stuff, and uh, yeah. uh, whenever, wherever I go, and it was just fantastic. Um, and it's very accessible. You can go in, go out, walk outside. Uh, have a, a pipe if you want or a glass of wine go back inside and avail yourself of more and uh, what a great sort that of sounds great. Yeah it's a, a very democratic
1: yeah absolutely no I, I, yeah, and there's a there's a sense of enjoyment or pleasure
0: yeah, yeah exactly exactly you know it feels like uh, like everything Italian I guess it sort of you know fits with your life you know right. it, it blends in right right So uh, go outside and have some salami. So I, I want to ask you, though, museums are at uh, sort of one part of the story, but what about art markets? So, or the art market in general as a as a thing? But, what about art markets? Yeah, is What's the... my take? Well, is the art market overall, as it stands, is it currently working for artists or is it holding them back? Is sort of what I was going to ask you, but yes, I want your take also. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I think that the the market work for artists in some ways and doesn't in others and that it's very case-by-case. Case. I think there are a lot of artists who have received acclaim, but they still have a difficult cash management standpoint. And I think the idea of sustainability purely from one's art is is a noble aspiration. But I think many artists, even who are quite successful, still teach and do other kinds of commissions and you know, if you look at a corporate model, corporations have portfolios of projects where some are, you know, a little bit more the cash cow and some of them are a little bit more the the kind of labor of love pilot project. So I think that, you know, it, what's asked of artists is hard. Artists are usually asked to be generous and to put something out into the world before they get something back. And that can be difficult. And that's a long game. I think that where I focus my attention is on artists who are trying to design things that work better for them. There's an interesting show up right now at the Gray Art Gallery at NYU, which was curated by a colleague of mine, um, Mosa Rasslisbert, and it's called Inventing Downtown. And it's about this period of time in the 1950s when artists ran cooperative galleries. So they ran the galleries themselves. They paid in like a membership fee and then rotated the shows. And I I think that, you know, art world history is littered with examples of artists kind of doing something structurally artistic in the marketplace. And so I feel like sometimes the artists have this, um, what my friend Esther Robinson, who also teaches business to artists, calls a white knight fantasy that they will be rescued and someone will. Represent them, they'll get a gallery, and a collector will love their work, and everything will be fine financially and I think that's just not that realistic inside or outside the art world, and so I think it's part of why I like to teach business to artists is that it's this form of practice and of resourcefulness you know that all of us face just because of the way the world is structured um in terms of the art market more broadly, it's always hard to know if it's if it's going up or down or cooling off or heating up um the two things I like to remind myself of are that the entire art market is about $65 billion, which I'd have to look at it exactly is approximately the quarterly revenue of Apple. So I think, you know, in the grand scheme, it's relatively small in the larger economy and it's anchored by these marquee sales by people who agree that a hundred million dollar artwork is an alternative currency. So, I just like to focus on the work I think is really interesting, and the people who are doing great work. And I have a libertarian "live and let live" attitude about the market. That you know, people should be able to buy and sell what they want. And I love for great works of art to be publicly accessible, uh, as opposed to in storage in a freeport, ideally. Um, but I think that you you know, I'm a little bit of an idealist. But I think you want to focus on making good work and seeking out work that resonates for you and then to kind of try to make that work for yourself financially. And again, I think ownership shares are a way of, of making that market function better and also function better for artists who are participants in creating so much of the value. And otherwise, you know, just kind of keep your head down and, and try to do the best work you can.
0: Well, as we sort of wind down the show, I've got a couple of fun questions for you or curiosity questions on my part. Uh, one is, did you draw the pictures that are in your book? Because I also see pictures on your website that you know, look similar.
1: Yeah, I did draw the pictures in the book. My editor, I had two really, well, three actually, really wonderful editors, and Hollis Heimbach, who acquired the book, um, and was a longtime editor at Harvard Business Review, and is a I she's she's just Hollis within business book publishing. She said, "Hey Amy, maybe you want to try out some drawings?" And I was like, "I'm kind of rusty, but sure." You know, never really thinking they would necessarily survive to the finished um, product. And then my um, editor, I work closely with Stephanie Hitchcock, was also you know a really lovely collaborator on the drawings too. So yes, I did make those. And I, I didn't make them to be precious or to be like, look at this great drawing. I made them to warm up the book and to kind of be conversational. Um, and because I'm a visual thinker and so some of the ideas felt like they needed a picture. So I'm, I'm grateful to them for inviting me to do that.
0: And so tell us just a little bit more about what you teach specifically in your classroom. I'd love to know what what topics you cover, or what range of topics. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I teach in the visual arts administration program in NYU Steinhardt, and I just started in September. So I, I work closely with students on their independent research projects, which really run the gamut in a fascinating way. And then I teach visual art markets. I teach a kind of combination of business modeling and strategy and art investing and entrepreneurship. And I also teach the economics of the art world. And then I do really work directly with artists to teach them business structures and planning. And some of those curricular materials will hopefully be out in the world soon. They're being completed, could be shared under a Creative Commons license. So watch this space for the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council and the Actors Fund eventually to release them. Um, but those, those are most of the things that I, I teach, and I'm, I'm doing some research about Ownership shares and the stem to steam movement, and um, you know, hopefully broadening the way we think about the concept of the artist in society to include all of us, and then also broadening access to the art world and within the art world, kind of looking at how it would be different if we thought about it more from artists' points of view and the point of view of artists as creators of value, not as you know, receivers of subsidy. Um, Because I I do think that, you know, ultimately, artists are why we have a thriving art world. And that it serves all of us to make it possible for people to make the best work they can. And for the people who we most want to trust in the public intellectual role of of artists to stay in the field, you know, and not, not jump out because of hardship or, you know, lack of robust conversation or whatever else it is.
0: All right, and I think I want to ask you one more thing, which is the superpower question, so you know if you could have one technology or superpower to do anything that you're currently just not able to do with your career or in the world, what would it be
1: <laughs> um that is a, if <laughs> I did not know I would be asked this question um well my I think that my actual um Real life superpower is that I'm uh, an empath um, almost to like seeing too much of people's psychology standpoint Mm -hmm. or extent. If I could have a superpower right now, um, I would love to be a person who had physical space and resources in which to convene conversation all the time. I think that hospitality is an undersung political value and that all of us need to gather in conversation more. And so, yeah, it would it would be that, or it would be a way of helping people gather in meaningful ways to make political change. I spent part of today trying to read and understand President Trump's executive order on immigration. I believe that an informed generalist should be able to file his or her own taxes and read an executive order. And both of those things are increasingly ridiculously difficult, even though I try to do both of them. So I think some form of being able to change the way that we have conversation and to remove the information costs um, so that we had good information and we could be in conversation with each other. You know, it's, it's hard enough. I think I always think there are two different categories. There are things that are hard and necessary, and there are things that are hard and unnecessary. And this whole kind of fake news, bravado, misunderstanding, false equivalence, inability to have kind of rigorous, thoughtful conversation with integrity and curiosity and imagination increasingly becomes something that's hard and unnecessary. And I think it'd be nice if we could focus on the things that are hard and necessary, like figuring out what we want to build and repair and collaborate on. So I don't know how that translates into an exact superpower, but, you know, maybe that's a superpower of having a a soapbox to stand on to say that or a power of convening and gathering people. But that's probably what I would choose.
0: Well, excellent answer. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for visual artists. For more information on art thinking and Amy Whitaker, visit amywit.com. That's amywit.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Amy. It's been really great having you.
1: Thanks so much. That's,